0: All right. Well, good morning. We're so glad you guys are here with us, uh, and so uh, such a good day. Uh, we're glad Nathan is back with us, and so uh, and so yeah. So there is a lot going on. You can clap for Nathan. Yeah, we love Nathan. Yeah. And so uh, so much going on. Make sure you download the app if you haven't. It's the best way to stay connected. Uh, sign up for push notifications, all that stuff, couple of announcements. Uh, volunteer appreciation dinner is this week, so we appreciate our volunteers. It takes over 100 volunteers each week to make Journey happen, and so once a year, we like to get them together, serve them a dinner, celebrate them, and so if you're one of those volunteers and you haven't yet, make sure and sign up for that dinner. It is this uh, Friday coming up. Uh, CIY Superstar is a fourth through sixth grade program. Uh, and so that is an awesome program. So if you have a 4th through 6th grader, uh, make sure and sign up. It's an overnight thing coming up here uh, in about a month. And we would love to see your kid there. I'll be there. My kids are in that program. Uh, and we would love to see them. All, as Kyle said, camps, uh, summer trips, all of that stuff. It's a great time uh, to get connected and know what's going on. Don't be any in this service. We got some baptisms today. So we're super excited for in the second service, including my daughter. So it's kind of a special day. So we're really excited. Yeah. She is stubborn. I never thought it would happen. But anyway, uh, so also I'm getting back from Guatemala. I landed at 2 a.m. on Saturday morning. And I'm here. That's all I can say. And so, uh, but yeah. So Guatemala, we were gone that week. Uh, last week, a few of us. Uh, if you guys don't know, we've talked about this before. Uh, we sponsor an entire village in Guatemala. Uh, there's about 15 more kids we need to take on to actually say we have every kid in that village sponsored. So if you're interested in that, we would love to connect you with that. It's a great program. Uh, we are working on building a school for them down there, and we're going to talk about our um, experience in Guatemala this week on our podcast. Uh, so if you don't know, we have a podcast that comes out every other week, Divinely Uninspired. Uh, we talk. About a lot of interesting and fun stuff, but also some stuff going on uh, here in Journey. We're talking about Guatemala. We're going back in July, so if you are interested specifically, and this is what's cool, if you are sponsoring one of the kids, you actually get to meet the kid that you're sponsoring. And so, uh, my my two kids are Elmer and Carmen, and Carmen is 17 years old. And just like any 17 year old, she could not be more embarrassed every time she sees me. And so, uh, but she's awesome. And so that's a great program can meet them. If you don't wanna to go to Guatemala, I know that with a condo, with uh, Nathan and Justin, you're doing, but you need to get out of this place Go see the rest of the world. It is amazing. It'll change you, change your heart, change your mind, and so we'd love to see you go on one of those trips, but again, we're going back in July. So this series uh, is all about love, and so last week was the week of love. I hope none of you guys forgot uh, that Wednesday was Valentine's Day, and you guys had a good week, and so this whole series is just talking about love and the ideas of love, and so we're going to keep with that theme, and today we're going to start with the beginning of a verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, but... God. Now, what Paul is doing when he, when he speaks here is, he, and if you read the rest of that chapter, what he's doing is he's setting up this idea that everything that we know about ourselves and how we respond to things and how we react, it's like we're in one category, and then whatever he's about to say about God is going to be in a different category and a different understanding of God. And so what I want to do before we kind of unpack this verse is just take a few minutes and just kind of talk about this idea of when it comes to God and our view of God, but maybe more important, what God thinks about when God thinks about you. Like maybe you've never pondered that. Like when you really think about what God thinks about you. Now we could say all of humanity because we all kind of fit into that category, but specifically about you. What does God think about? Or how about this question? Have you ever pondered this? How does God feel about me? Now, I think one of the things that that happens, and I don't know if we were taught this or we just experienced it. And by the way, just so you know, everything you believe about everything, including God, was either taught to you or it's something you've experienced. That's life. That's where our understanding of everything is what was taught or what we experienced. And so maybe for some of us, um, the influence when we think about what God thinks about us simply comes from the idea of what we think about ourselves. And so if we view ourselves in a certain way, if we think this about ourselves, then more than likely God thinks that about us as well. For example, if you're a Christian, and I know most of us are, some of us are still figuring that out, but if you're a Christian, so you believe in God, and so you're wondering what God thinks about you, here's generally how it goes. If I had a really good day, right? Like, and so a good day for you morally or ethically, like some of you, you got up, because you're a good Christian, you got up you know, earlier than you were supposed to, and you took some time to read your Bible, or to say a prayer, or to spend some time with God. Or maybe you have a day when you decide that you're going to be nicer to your husband or to your wife, or you didn't yell at each other on the way to church like we often do, right? Or you didn't yell at your kids, or you were honest at work this week, or you know what, maybe you were a little selfless this week and you you let somebody get ahead of you in line, or somebody cut you off this morning and you didn't give them the finger, good for you. And and so like, you know, you, you had a good day, you helped somebody out. And so when you have a good day or a good week and you've been a good person, What you might be tempted to think is, well, you know what? I think I'm doing pretty good. So I think God thinks I'm doing pretty good. And so God feels good about me on those days. But then there's the other days where you kind of have a bad day or a bad week. And so maybe this week you were a little selfish or you were a little harsh with somebody. Maybe you were tempted to get into an argument with your wife or your husband or your boyfriend. Maybe you talked back to your parents Maybe you talked badly about somebody, or you weren't exactly honest at work, or there was a deal you made at work this week, and you didn't really disclose everything on the deal, or you you took advantage of a situation, and all of a sudden now, you you don't feel so good about yourself because there's this kind of guilt and this shame. And so you assume that the way God feels about you is the way that you feel about you. Well, when I'm doing good, God is good with me. When I'm doing bad, then I'm not doing so good with God, and maybe that's the way God thinks about me. It's really strange when you think about it, if you really break it down, it's almost like we believe that God takes his cues from what we think and feel about ourselves from us. God's thinking and feeling about us is just a mirror reflection of ourselves. Blaise Pascal once wrote this, he said this, God made man in his own image and man returned the compliment." Thus, if we feel hateful towards ourselves, we assume that God feels hateful towards us. I got fascinated a few years ago studying um, about Charles Cooley. Uh, If you don't know who Charles Cooley is, he was one of the early pioneers of sociology. Now, sociology is kind of the study of of people and and social experiments and ideas of of why and how we interact the way that we do, not only with ourselves, but with other people. Um, And I love to study people. People are fascinating. The two best places to study people is the State Fair, because it's amazing, and and, an airport, right? You ever been in an airport? You ever make up like stories in your head as you're sitting there, uh, just kind of walking, pe- watching people walk by. Like You make up these stories about who are they, what are they doing, you know, all of these things. People are fascinating. Now, Charles Cooley had this theory early on in sociology. It was called the looking glass theory. And in the looking glass theory, it's a simple idea that, that people, you and I, we, we perceive ourselves, we think of ourselves and who we are based almost completely on the way that other people think about us. And so we get this image of who we are simply based on this idea of looking through this glass of seeing what other people think about us. For example, um, if you guys, and I know you already do, but let's just say for fun, if you guys thought I was really handsome, like really handsome, like we're talking like Brad Pitt handsome, right? Like if you guys thought that about me, then over time, if enough people believe that about me, then I may actually start to believe that about myself. Now, for you guys that don't know me, I'm not that delusional, okay? I don't think I look like Brad Pitt. So simply, it comes down to these three steps. He says this, and, and number one, we imagine this should become, We imagine how we must appear to others. So, so we think about this. How do we actually appear to other people? We imagine, react to what we feel their judgment of that appearance must be. So, so we think this, that they think this about us, and so we imagine and react of how we think they feel, and then we develop ourselves through the judgment of others, So what other people think about me or have said about me, then that must be true of me, and so that's how I start to see myself. The looking glass theory describes the process where an individual's base their sense of self on how they believe others view them. Using social interactions as a type of mirror, people use these judgments they receive from others to measure their own worth, value, and behavior. And so we get our worth and our value from this idea of, How do people perceive me? So here's the big idea. What if God doesn't take his cues about what he thinks about you from you? What if God doesn't take his cues of what he thinks about you from even what others think about you? One of the other things we have learned in culture is this, not only this idea that we get our image really based on what other people say and think, but the other thing that we've learned is the way people feel about us is almost always dependent on our behavior, right? So as a kid, you learn this pretty pretty early on um, that our behavior matters. And so what happens is, if we're good, you know, if our behavior's good, then people like us and we have a better relationship with people. But if our behavior is bad, then this causes some issues. And our behavior sets us up for, for different scenarios. So if our behavior is good with our friends and our parents and our family, right, it sets us up to be successful relationally because we've been good. And, and when we're good, people like us and people think well of us. But then also the flip side of that is when our behavior isn't good, it can ruin these relationships. It can ruin this image, this perception that people have with us. The way we treat people, the way we guilt people, manipulate people, talk about people, these behaviors have the potential to negatively affect us and what we think other people think about us. And so it's natural for us to think that, well, since every other relationship that I'm in is kind of behavior-based, then, then surely the way God views me is simply just based upon my behavior. That as long as I'm being good, then God thinks I'm good. Or, or maybe there's this other social cue is that, you know, it's not just the way other people view us. It's not just based on our behavior, but it's performance-based. Right? Our perceived value and worth is predicated on performance. If we perform well, then things go well. You've got to perform, right? You've got to perform at school. You've got to do good. You've got to get your best grades. You've got to perform on the basketball court or on the field. Right? My, my kids play sports, you know, and, and all of us, we, we do this. It, it, it's, it's, it's wrong, and we all do it, so let's just acknowledge it. We'll say to our kids, like, things like, hey, all we want is for you to do your best, right? And then we pick them up and we're like, how many points did you score? (laughs) Those are two different questions, aren't they? And so it's performance-based, or it's performance-based at work, or it's performance-based in culture and society. Some of us feel like you have to perform in relationships, right? You have to meet the expectation of them in order for them to canoe like you. It's performance-based. You had to perform for your parents. You had to perform for your father or your mother. Some of you feel like you maybe have to perform in your marriages in order to get the love that you want. Have you ever thought about this? And I'm not trying to get real deep, but this is going to be deep. For some of us, the feeling is we've never experienced love that was not performance-based. And can I be honest with you? Performing is exhausting, isn't it? And so we think that, well, if this is the way that we're judged in social settings and in culture, then maybe these are the cues that God uses as well when he decides how he feels about us. Now, all three of those ideas have this in common. When I think about me, when I think about what other people think about me, when I think about the way that culture treats me, they all revolve around this idea of this little word, do, we tend to think that our value and worth is based on what we do. And so because we think that about ourselves, we typically think that that also is the way that God thinks about us. It's about what we do. But what if that's wrong? What if God doesn't take his cues from you about you, He doesn't take his cues from your friends or from your culture, but what if God operates on a completely different system? And this is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, but God... Now, when we hear this, um, there's this temptation for some of us, and I get it, is to say, well, you don't know that because you don't know me. You don't know what I've done or what I'm capable of. You don't know my behavior or my character, and so you can't tell me what God thinks about me because certainly because of the way we've been perceiving our ideas of ourselves, it's filtered through behavior and values and character and what we do. But I just want to spend a few minutes today doing everything within my communication power to explain to you what's wrong with this thinking. And I completely understand how we got here. I completely understand and I'm not pointing fingers. It's the default of what we do. And I'm also, because some of you are jumping to this, I'm not saying that God is not concerned with our actions or how we treat ourselves or other people. That is not what I'm saying at all. But the question simply started with when God thinks about you, what does he think how does he feel If you've actually taken the time to read the scriptures it's very very clear when God thinks about you and me when when we see how he feels about us the idea that comes up over and over again is that he loves you and it's not based on what you do it's based on who He is. That nothing you do, are to do, or plan to do, determines his love for you. Thomas Merton, one of the great writers and thinkers in Christian history, says this, Whether you understand it or not, God loves you, is present in you, lives in you, dwells in you, calls you, saves you, And offers you an understanding and compassion, which are like nothing you have ever found in a book or heard in a sermon. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, even if I do my best effort right now, that God's love for you is so different and so grand, I don't even know if I could communicate it in a way to get you to fully understand it. And so I want to stay with this idea for just a few minutes. And, and the reason I can say this with, with confidence it, that God loves you is not because I have some type of special insight or I have a different Bible than the rest of you, okay? What, what it is is that as you look at the Gospels, which are these tellings of Jesus' life from these different perspectives. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of Jesus' life. And it's so amazing, we don't understand this, how important it is. We have four accounts of Jesus' life. If you go back in history, there's almost nobody that lived in history that we have as much information for at that period of time as we do Jesus. And when you open these gospels and you study the life of Jesus, you study the way that he interacted with people, the things that he said, the things that people said about him, what you come up over and over again is that people who were nothing like Jesus, they liked him. And what's so amazing as you read these gospels is that these people that were nothing like Jesus liked him. And in return, people that were nothing like Jesus, Jesus liked them. It was like they were drawn to him. They were attracted to him. And there's like this weird kind of thing. Listen. People are weird. You are weird. You do weird things. You say weird things. And so were these people. And so if you were to go in the first century and you were to have an interaction with Jesus and all of your weirdness and all of your stuff, the reality is you would find this moment where it really felt like he actually liked you. And so one of the biggest revelations in, in following Jesus is to kind of get wrapped up in this idea that, that maybe this love that he has, this acceptance, this, this willingness to embrace humanity where it is, maybe the love of God, maybe it's bigger than you ever imagined. Maybe it's more unconditional than we could even put words around. And everybody struggles with this idea, everybody in religion, everybody in human history, they've struggled with how to articulate and explain this idea of God and what he thinks about when he thinks about you and the love that, that he has for you. And, and it's almost impossible, but it's this feeling that we get from Scriptures is that God loves you right now as you are, but God also loves you way too much to leave you that way. Jesus himself um, says that one of the primary parts uh, of him coming to to the, to earth, to life, to be a human was to try to explain what God was like, right? Like that we see this this idea of him trying to say, like, if you want to know how God feels about you, if you want to know what God is like in his interactions with humanity, um, just study me. And, and then the central part of this message was, as John would later write, is that God just he doesn't just just love. That's not just like something he does. He actually says, as we saw last week, that God is love. It's the very essence of who he is. And he loves you right now, and there's nothing you could do that could actually make him love you more or less. Julian of Norwich in the 1300s, which is a long time ago, said this. Some of us believe that God is almighty and can do everything, And that he is all wise and may do everything. So when we think about God, if he is who the Bible describes him as, we think of him as being all powerful and almighty and all wise and knows and can do all of these things. But then it goes on to say, but that he is all love and will do everything. There we draw back. And as I see it, this ignorance is the greatest of all hindrances. The belief that God actually is all love. And that he loves you and me and humanity. And so Jesus, everywhere he goes, he finds himself in between two groups. And and the two groups are the law keepers and the law breakers, the behaviors and the misbehaviors, those who felt like they were close to God and did everything right, and so God's good with them. And the other people that maybe felt like they had messed up and did things wrong, and so they're in opposition with God or that God maybe doesn't care or that God couldn't be for them. And both groups, this is important, both groups of people, thought God's opinion about them was shaped on their behavior. And are they good enough? And Jesus did everything in his power to explain to them, no, you've got it all wrong. One interesting thing that sticks out to me is, is God's, Jesus' insistence to keep referring to God as a father. Now, for some of us, this is hard because um, we didn't grow up with a good father or a good father figure. And so when Jesus keeps referring to God as this good and perfect father, it's hard to, to understand. And uh, but, but here's what he's kind of trying to play out, and, and he kind of communicates, so I'll do my best as well. Um, so a few months ago, my daughter, Paxton, who's getting baptized today, um, she is me. Like, she is stubborn and hard-headed, and she will argue with you until you just get so frustrated you want to quit, right? A- a- and so a few months ago, um, I come home, and... My wife is like just fuming. It takes a lot to get my wife mad too. Um, but she's fuming and she's upset and she's emotional and she just looks at me and I just can tell it's this look like it's your fault. And it's my fault because Paxton is me. And, and so, you know, I, I kind of hear the details of what goes on. So I go, I go into Paxton's room and, and Paxton is, you know, in her bed under the covers, and of course she's feeling all this angst, and, and she's like me. And I don't know. If, I don't know if this makes sense. I shouldn't even say this, but you ever realize that like you get so mad and you keep getting mad, but you start to realize you're actually not mad at the person, you're mad at yourself because you were just dumb. You ever you ever done that? So like, there's this moment where I'm starting to realize that Paxton realizes like she's crossed the line and all this stuff. And so we're talking, and, and, and as frustrating as it is and as puzzling as it is as to why somebody would act this way, because you're like, come on. But there's also this sense that, that in that moment dealing with her and all of the chaos and all the stuff and all the apologies she's got to make and all the wrong that she's done, there's also the understanding that as her father, there's nothing she could do to actually make me love her any less. And I am an imperfect father. So what Jesus is trying to say is, if we understand that as as people, as imperfect as we are, even as a father, that there's nothing that this child could do to make me love her any less, how much more so is God the father? So here we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 8, says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God, so take everything else that you know about any understanding of love and who God is and understand that God is in this completely separate category from the way any of us and any of our understanding would respond in this moment. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that this, while we were still sinners, which means this, while you were still stupid, while you were still making mistakes, while you were still in this place where you can't see past any of this and while you were doing this, he didn't wait for you to get good. He didn't wait for you to get right. While we were still who we are and in our mess, his love is so great and he demonstrates his love for us. <clears throat> There's a painting. Um, go back to that slide. So this painting, um, I've used this before. You may not remember. It's been several years. Um, it's called The Interchange. Um, it looks like a third grader did it, if I'm being honest. Um, but actually, this painting was painted by a guy named William de Kooning. Uh, he was an early 19th century painter, um, Norwegian-born but lived in America. And he painted this painting. Um, and, and I look at it and I just go, I, I look at it and I go, eh, it's not that great. Did you know up until 2017, this painting sold for more money than any other painting in human history? $300 million. I see your faces. <laughs> see, the problem is this. You look at this and you're like, I wouldn't pay $50 for that. And somebody was willing to pay $300 million. See, it doesn't matter what you or I think this painting is worth. What matters is what the person who is willing to pay that money thought it was worth. And this is the idea that Paul is trying to communicate through his words about God's love. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks your worth is. It doesn't matter what you think your worth is. The value of a thing is always determined by the price it will bring. Your value to God has already been settled. That he was willing to give up Jesus, the most valuable thing in all of human creation for you. Ephesians 2 says this, For we are God's masterpiece. Now, this is an interesting idea, because I'll be honest with you. Some of you never felt like a masterpiece your entire life, have you? You felt like a mess. You look at that painting, you're like, makes sense to me. <laughs> he has created us anew in Christ Jesus. The reality is the value of a thing is determined by the price it will bring. And so when you worry under about your value and your worth to God... Jesus says, you don't need to do that anymore because the price has already been paid. And it was a lot. That's your worth. And the problem is some of us keep looking in the wrong places. And we keep trying to find our value and our worth in the wrong places. And we keep trying to allow other people to decide whether we should be loved or not. Everything you believe falls into two categories what you were taught and what you experienced. Everything you believe falls into one of those two categories. And for some of us in this room, the problem is we were taught or we were experienced something very different. For some of us in this room, our view of God came from a group of people that maybe. We're Christians, and what we experienced was greed, judgmentalism, narrow-mindedness. You ever been around people that you just kind of get this feeling like, you know, they kind of hope everybody's going to hell, and you're like, I don't think that's the message. And so some of you, that's what you believe God is like. Or maybe for others of us in this room, what we heard or experienced was that you were rejected. Or you were judged. Or you were made to feel less than or worthless or of little to no value. But what if that just isn't true? I have no doubt that I would feel probably the same way that you feel. So I don't judge you, but here's my hope my hope is that in all of that mess you have to work through that you don't miss the love of jesus you don't miss how deep and wide and crazy and unfathomable it truly is how much he loves you how much potential he sees in you and the better life he wants for you. Now I don't say that because I think I know more than anybody else in this room. But I say that because when I read the gospels and I study the life of Jesus and I study the words written about him, I see love for me, for you, for everyone. I see a grace that is bigger and deeper and wider than we could ever imagine. Now, I got to wrap up because we got a lot to do, but I want to end with this quote. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. So we're going to work through it together. It's Henry Nguyen, and here's what he says. Over the years, I've came to realize the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they're part of a much larger temptation to self-reject. And so this is what we've been talking about, this idea of we get our image, or value, and our worth from all these other places. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I feel myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am a nobody. My dark said side says I am no good, and I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. Being the beloved constitutes as the core truth of our existence. For you guys that don't know the word beloved, uh, the simple definition of it simply means one who is dearly loved. When John is writing his letter to describe God's love, the word that he uses to describe those who follow or in Christ Jesus is simply those who are beloved you are dearly and deeply loved. And so my hope is that you know in the depths of your soul and in your mind that you are loved. You have been loved and you will be loved because God is love. And we are loved because of who he is. Paul will later write, in Romans chapter 8, he will say, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then he gives us a list of all of the things that we think could actually separate us from the love of God. And he comes back and he says, no, nothing could separate us from the love of God. And I know that's hard for some of us to get. And I know you may not believe me. And that's why you just have to come back next week. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. And may we fully, as best as we can, try to wrap our minds and our hearts around it, that we are loved, that you show us how much that we are loved, that it doesn't matter what anybody else has said or the value or worth that anyone else has ascribed to us, you show us your love through what you've done. And so may that idea penetrate our hearts and our minds to know that we are loved, that we have value and that we have worth. And so in these next few minutes, God, my prayer is that as we sing these songs, that maybe for some of us, it may be the first time we've truly believed some of these things to be true and that your still small voice speaks to us. And so we love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray, amen.